Hello, and welcome to the Municipal Art Society podcast, the series where we talk about New York City with people who know it well and still love it. I'm Audrey Gray, and I'm joined today by journalist and NYC native Ada Calhoun. Ada has one of the most interesting childhoods the city has ever offered. She grew up on St. Mark's Place. She didn't just roll in as a teenager. She lived on the street for decades, absorbing its changes and its history. She's just written a book. It's called St. Mark's is Dead, The Many Lives of America's Hippest Street. Ada, welcome. Thank you, Audrey. I would love to start with your book's dedication because when I heard this, your story for the first time, I thought, my God, I would love to meet this woman's parents. <laughs> they're, they're eccentric. They're very, they're strange um, and lovely people. So you dedicate it to them and you say, you know, to my parents who in the apocalyptic 70s mm-hmm. looked at St. Mark's and they said, said, what a great place to raise a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and were you born yet when they moved there? No, I, uh, they moved there in 1973 um, and they were married in 74 at St. Mark's Church, a couple blocks away. Um, and they've lived there ever since. They're still there in a top floor walk up there in their 70s now. And they're in better shape than I am because they go up and down those stairs every single day. So they brought you home from the hospital to St. Mark's Place. Indeed, they did. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Um, And how long did you stay there before? You still live in New York. So I live in Williamsburg with my husband and son, um, but we still visit a lot. Um, And yeah, I I lived there until I was, I guess, 18. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Your whole childhood. My whole childhood. On this street. That's right. (laughs) Most of our listeners will know St. Mark's Place and have their own memory of, you know, whatever they did as a teenager on that street. But for those who who might not know, give us a quick intro to this extraordinary few blocks in New York City. So it's only three blocks long. A lot of people remember it as being enormous in their memories, but um, it starts at Astor Place on the west side. And it's just East 8th Street, but it has the fancy name from Astor Place to Tompkins Square Park. So it's just three blocks, goes third to second, second to first, and first to A. Your book is fascinating. It's a historical survey. Um, We're going to cover centuries. But before that, I wanted to just touch on this big idea of the book, which just comes out every single generation. You interview 200 different people who've who've been involved Mm -hmm. with this place. Um, And they all had this sense of it was better back when. It died then. Mm -hmm. It died 10 years ago. Right. So that was one thing that really struck me. I think once I'd done even just a few interviews, I was really amazed that everyone had said, well, of course, St. Mark's is dead now. And I would say, oh, when did it die? And they would say, well, obviously in 1988 when the Gap moved in. Or they would say, well, obviously in 1971 when the Fillmore East closed. Or obviously, and they, they all had this very obvious end date when the city or the street stopped being interesting or cool or relevant. Um, and I think the most recent date that I've heard was... Um, uh, a college student told me that when the Starbucks at Astor Place had closed just a few <laughs> months earlier, that was when St. Mark's Place died for good. <laughs> so to me, it really, it, it signified that this was a street that really meant a lot to people and was very special for them. And they felt a strong connection to until suddenly they didn't anymore. Yeah. And they're probably associating it with their own youths. Yes. Right. Youths. Youths. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the one thing that I thought was um, very suspicious was that the year people thought the street died correlated often with when they were um, their youngest and hottest selves. Um, so when they were 19, that was when the street was the best. And then as soon as they stopped going out every night, it was over. Yeah. And they blame the street for their own aging, I think. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, there's just no debate that the street is extraordinary. Um, and you hit it um, 
every decade starting way back. So can we march through history a little bit together? Sure. Um, and, and we go pretty far back. I mean, we I mean, we could do Lenape, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> They're the only ones who I think can really complain. Um, you know, I think a lot of people say, like, you know, we were pushed out and these new people were so awful. And, you know, everybody who says that except Lenape also had some kind of role in ending the utopia that came before them. So, you know, the hippies are very mad at the punks for having taken over. And yet the beatniks before them have some complaint against the hippies sort of ruining what had been a really wonderful place for them beforehand. But then Lenape, we have to give it to them. Um, yeah, it was it was great. Um, before the Dutch showed up. So, and it's not like just any Dutch, it's Stuyvesant himself. I mean, he <laughs> owned this stretch of property for a while, mm -hmm. yeah? So the first real development of the area um, around St. Mark's Place um, was when Peter Stuyvesant bought it as a bowery lot um, and turned it into a farm. Um, and the, as best I can see, St. Mark's Place was sort of a, a path through an orchard originally. His own orchard. His own orchard. Yes, Stuyvesant. Stuyvesant loved pear trees. Um, he had a lot of, of flowering trees on his property, which was vast. And it was, at, at the time, the property seemed really far away from right, from downtown. The, sure. the city was just at the tip of the island, and so this was his country estate. Okay, so Stuyvesant, what I didn't know um, about him um, before reading your book is that I really like your storytelling around his own life. He kind of ends up sort of sequestering <laughs> there in his on his property at the end of his life. He doesn't really like the English. He doesn't really <laughs> like, you know, uh, the Americans themselves. Like, yeah. he's not super, he's like a man without a land. Yeah, so he was always pretty grouchy, but then once the English showed up and took over, um, it was, you know, he got even more unhappy. Um, and there's that great book, um, Island at the Center of the World by Russell Shorto that I really loved that describes the sort of emotional state um, that he entered into after, after he lost um, New York. Well, he certainly lost his vision for the land too, because they they you know put the grid right on top yeah. of it. His great, I guess, his great grandchildren had big plans for real estate development, and um, basically they thought Second Avenue was going to be what Fifth Avenue became, and they thought that that was going to be just the most fashionable, glamorous um, avenue in all of New York. Um, and they they had a, a map that they'd drawn up. Um, where they named all the streets after members of the Stuyvesant family. Um, so you'd have, you know, this, you could live on the, the cross street of Judith and Peter Street, um, oh. and, or you could live on Verplank Street. Um, and then, of course, the, the state grid came in and they said, yeah, no, we're not going to let you keep numbers. any of this, they, yeah. except for one tiny little street, which is still here, um, that doesn't, doesn't run according to the grid, and that's Stuyvesant Street in front of St. Mark's Church. Right. Right. It's fun. It's fun to, to walk down that little crooked yeah. street right there. It's, and it's charming. It's It's the only street down there that's um, due east to west. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So, of course, uh, we move. We're going to just move quickly to yeah. the gangs of New York era. Um, <laughs> so we're going to land back in the 1850s. Um, and th I feel like this is when, like, the character of the street really starts emerging because mm -hmm. we have these incredible, all this energy from the Germans and Italians and the Irish and Russians and the Polish. And I know they're all coming in at different times mm -hmm. and different decades, but the fact is they're all pouring in yes. and making it their home. Mm -hmm. um, and there are all these like great little moments along the way. You quoted, um, so Peter Cooper, who wants to provide opportunities right. for these new immigrants, and he's going to build Cooper Union right next to mm -hmm. St. Mark's Place. Um, and 
and people are giving lectures about the state of it already, right? right? And Bishop Matthew Simpson, I love this quote, there are as many prostitutes here as Methodists. Yes. <laughs> he says early on, so it was already just, be, I mean, it, I feel like from the beginning, St. Mark's Place gets interesting fast. Yes, it does. And it was, um, it was really rough and tumble. Um, and it, originally it started out being um, the sort of the, the more glamorous part of town and the tenements further south were um, were much rougher, um, but then the tenements kind of moved north into um, the St. Mark's Place area, and a lot of the single-family homes were converted into multiple apartments, and um, one of my favorite things that I found from the late 1800s was um, this very nostalgic story about how great it was earlier in the 1870s, and um, one of the things was that it used to be full of people who were in orchestras, so that every family... Um, played something like five instruments each. And so you would just hear this, this din all the time when you were walking along St. Mark's Place of just people practicing. people practicing, you know, in every window. Yeah. Did you play an instrument when you were growing up? No, I never did. You didn't? No. I never went to camp, ask. never learned an instrument. It was, you know, oh, you learned I watched a lot of TV. <laughs> I learned other things. Um, during the, that sort of 18, uh, late 1800s, we're also seeing a bunch of firsts happen on St. Mark's Place, which surprised mm -hmm. me too. Can you tell us about some of those? Sure. So one of the big ones was, um, was daycare. And you had this woman, Sarah Curry, who was um, a kind of a miracle worker. And she'd been a missionary and she was in the tenement area further south. A missionary to the East Village. Missionary to the East Village. Yeah. They, we, we needed it. Um, and uh, she saw a child get run over and she said, you know, what's, you know, what's happening? And the mother said, we have to go to work. We don't, we, our kids just have to stay here and entertain themselves. Um, and she opened a school where the mothers could leave their children um, while they went to work. Um, and it's still in operation today. The first daycare mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, also, first lending library, huh? Yeah, right Altendorfer, right around the corner. Also still in operation. I was there the other day. German yeah. name. German name because it was it was one of the big um, contributions that Little Germany made. And there were many. And there's still several buildings on St. Mark's Place where you can see the old German influence. There's the German shooting gallery. Um, still has its inscription on the side of one of the buildings on St. Mark's Place. So I feel like as we hit like 1900 and the turn of that century, it stops being like such a respectable, hardworking right. <laughs> neighborhood yes. and it starts becoming like the epicenter for anarchist thought That's and revolutionary right. thought. And you say in your book that at one point it had um, the nickname Hail Marks Place. Yes. Spelled with M-A-R-X. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So can you kind of guide us through a little bit of that? Like, how did it get so lively and cool? Well, I think a lot of it was probably Cooper Union because you had a lot of union organizing going on there. Um, and, you know, Clara Lemlich, um, who led the uprising of the 20,000, she gave her speech at Cooper Union. And that's what really um, started a lot of um, the workers movement. Um, so a lot of the union headquarters were along St. Mark's Place. So you, it started out very early as a place where people would come from all over the city to discuss ideas um, and to plot. It was a big plotting location. And I feel like a lot of writing happening there too and publishing. There were, yeah, so the um, Novi Mir, the newspaper where Trotsky uh, worked was in 77 St. Mark's Place. So that was the office where he worked. Um, and there were just, there were a lot of writers very early on and, um, and a lot of bohemians very early. You, um, you quote the W. 
WPA, the Works Progress Administration, mm -hmm. right? Guide to New York City in 1939, calling St. Mark's Place crowded, noisy, squalid in many of its aspects. No other section of the city is more typical of New York. <laughs> yeah, and that's one thing I feel like um, has been a recurring theme is that it's um, it's the most New York place and that a lot of things about the history of St. Mark's Place really are a microcosm for the history of, of New York City and then also in some ways for America. And it, it hit me as I'm reading about these years that the problems they had or the things they faced are still around. Mm -hmm. They were talking about um, the itch in St. Mark's Theater. Oh, yeah. Vermin in the seats. Yes. Is that the bugs? <laughs> I believe it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who even knows what other vermin? Uh, but... Who knows? But yeah, that was in the um, 1940s. And one of the, um, the older men I spoke with um, had grown up there in the 40s. And he said that that was not the nice theater. The nice theater was the Lowe's Commodore a couple of blocks south, which of course later became the Fillmore East in the 1960s. Yeah. Um, the story gets so sweet for me um, in the early 1950s because W.H. Auden, yeah. one of my favorite, favorite writers, beautiful poet, um, moves in and stays, going to stay there for 20 years, mm -hmm. um, serving martinis and jelly jars. <laughs> um, I, you know, I knew his writing. I've certainly read, you know, much of his poetry, but I didn't know much about him as a person. And mm -hmm. I could, I'm wondering if you could tell us a few stories because they're so sure. endearing to me. Uh, he's a real character. He is a real character. And what, I mean, just, I feel like he's the closest thing to a saint. Um, I mean, except for maybe Dorothy Day, who he was friends with, um, that's ever come out of maybe um, all of lower Manhattan. Um, so he was British poet um, he was incredibly gifted as far as um, poetry and could kind of copy any style and was just a beautiful writer and very successful. But he wasn't um, like a snotty writer. He's really down to earth. He's very, very, down very to earth. funny. He's extremely funny. Um, and he uh, was a hoarder. He, was, he sort of lived, so to speak, talk about the itch. He lived basically in filth and just had, you know, piles of stuff everywhere. You think because he was poor? He, I mean, he's he, a poet, right? He was he was pretty successful, though, I mean, for the time. So it wasn't so much poverty. I think he was just, he was the life of the mind. And I think he didn't, he, he was definitely the opposite of, um, of somebody who would care about material things. Um, so the only time anybody ever really remembered him um, going after money at all was he went to, to a, um, some magazine that owed him um, a certain amount of money and sat there until they paid him. And left, and they were all like, "Well, that was very uncharacteristic." And then it turned out that somebody needed um, an operation paid for, and of course, he had just secretly paid for his friend's operation. So he was the kind of guy who did things like that. Um, someone was trying to get um, uh, his daughter married to um, to an Englishman. Um, wrote to him, you know, "Will you marry my daughter?" Um, a lot of people had said no already, and Auden not only said yes, he cabled back one word: "Delighted." So that she could immigrate and come over? So that over? she could escape the Nazis. She was German. Oh, wow. Um, so he, he just, he very um, quietly um, did wonderful deeds all the time. Um, but he also was very passionate, especially about the church. He had a feud with um, Michael Allen, who was the priest of St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, a couple blocks further up. Um, again, that's Peter Stuyvesant started the original church that had been in that place yeah. and my parents were married there and michael and allen was like this cool hippie priest right? michael allen was a cool hippie priest he was going to make everything more relevant it drove auden completely insane and there's this beautiful letter that the rector of the church showed me that auden had written to michael allen it began 
uh, Dear Michael Allen, have you gone stark raving mad? And it was went on and on and about how horrible he was. And it, uh, it ended something like, I implore you by the bowels of Christ, reconsider this. <laughs> the, bowels. <laughs> the bowels of Christ. And it was um, because he had changed the liturgy. Oh, yes. Um, so, and according to somebody else who had been the assistant rector, he said that basically if the altar linens were changed, that Aud- you'd hear about it from Auden. I love this story you told him. At one point, the church, I mean, he's a faithful member, right? He, shows, he went every Sunday in his uh, slippers. Fr- yeah, frumpled as yes. he was. <laughs> he shows up every Sunday. And they put him on one of those, like, you know, hip 1960s or whatever committees to rewrite the songs. Right. <laughs> and he was just miserable. Bad idea. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he said his quote, I think, afterward was, it would have been better if they put them back into Latin. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. And yet Auden's not this ultra conservative at all. No, no. Well, I mean, he was gay and he had um, a partner uh, and for many, many years, Chester Coleman, um, and was fairly open about it. Um, not, and he let artists stay at his place all the yeah, time, he, right? Was, if was, they could handle the mess. <laughs> he, um, because he traveled a lot and he spent a lot of time in Europe um, months on end and he would sublet his place to lucky, um, young, ambitious writers. Mm, so he stayed there almost his whole life then, the, or the rest of it. He was an older man when he was there. Yes, and he left actually in the early 70s. Um, and he left, I guess, not that long before my parents moved in. And he wanted to—he said he, he left because it was getting so dangerous. Um, and he was afraid he was going to be mugged, and he moved back to, I believe, Oxford. Um, and then I, rumor has it he was mugged immediately um, in Oxford? In Oxford. <laughs> oh, my I don't Lord. know if it's true, but he died not that long after. I think he died mm-hmm. in 1973. Wow. And yeah. your parents moved in 1973. Yeah, actually, I think they moved in the same week, they said, because it was he died, I think, late September, and they moved in, I think, October 1st. No wonder you have this spiritual connection yeah. to Auden. Um, all right. Well, as your parents move in and when you arrive, um, things you know, really turned from like more literary and I feel like um, experimental to just like Mm -hmm. supremely cultural. There's a great quote. um, Before the mid 60s, you'd see people walking around with books, Mm -hmm. thinking about ideas. Afterwards, they'd have a joint. Yes. (laughs) There were a lot more drugs um, and a a lot, a lot more mugging. Um, The the city emptied out really. And so it was in the 70s. In the 70s. So it was just people who could, um, who couldn't really afford to leave for the most part. And my parents. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So obviously it was a lot of artists still. And yes. then what happens next? Who, who's, I mean, I feel like Warhol's the next like big name, but is that how you see it? I Pretty much. Yeah. I, it was, um, so I guess it was Electric Circus was late sixties. And what um, was that? 70s. Oh, so, um, so basically it was a nightclub, a very famous, um, very fancy nightclub. They didn't serve any alcohol, but everybody was on drugs. Um, <laughs> they served milkshakes. And just right. crazy thing. But anyway, um, you know, a lot of celebrities would show up uh, and there were these insane show, floor shows at all times. There'd be people swinging from trapezes. This is pre-punk. Or, they're this more pre-punk. They're, they're sort of making fun of the hippies, this crowd, the Warhol crowd. They're yeah. like, it's a new thing. It's mm-hmm. not that either. Right. So, and you know, when it started out, it was really this sort of epitome of the hippie hippie stuff as cool, as glamorous. Um, so you had um, Gerard Malanga, you had, I mean, you had a lot of the, the Warhol crowd who did actually something called the, it was slightly before the Electric Circus opened in the same space, which was 19 to 23 St. Mark's Place, um, called the Exploding Plastic Inevitable. Um, oh, that's awesome. And the Velvet Underground started out there. 
Yeah. Um, the and exploding plastic. And <laughs> is that like a happening? Was that like it was an like event? Little, yeah. And it was, you know, um, uh, trippy um, projections and live music. And um, I think John Waters told me that he went there and um, and that and that he saw Lou Reed shooting up on stage and he was like, I, you know, it could have been fake, but it looked pretty convincing. Oh, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nearby, another stage opens that like changed the whole area, and that was CBGB's. Yes. So, um, so then it really over the next, I guess, few years became just the um, the headquarters for punk, and um, CBGB was sort of the punk headquarters at night, and then during the day it was St. Mark's Place because Manic Panic was there, and then later Trash and Vaudeville was there. And these are stores. And these are punk stores. Um, so a lot of the same people who worked at Manic Panic also worked at CBGB's. Um, and people just hung out on the street during the day. And these stores are a big deal because I, I feel like it's where people like who are coming to New York for the first time, a lot of them, or coming in from the burbs, are trying on identities and like literally dressing in a new way yes. or trying on a different, you know, just a different stage of their own lives. So many people associate St. Mark's with their own coming of age. Yeah, and one thing that I heard again and again was that people didn't feel like they could be themselves back home um, I mean, they couldn't find the clothes to be who they wanted to be, and they couldn't find the friends to, you know, hang out with that they wanted to hang out with um, or the music. And so they'd come to St. Mark's Place and they could find the records and they could find the um, the jacket and they could find the people and they could get their hair done the way they wanted. And so it was a real um, forge, I think, for a lot of identities. And what is it like for you? Is Are these your teenage years? So this was, well, I, I was born in 76, so um, a little young. Then. So yeah, I was. I was. You know, I remember all the um, the punks, the sort of early eighties. And would Mohawks. you talk to them? I mean, here you are, like a kid. Were you playing like street games and stuff? I didn't what play was outside it? that much? It's really funny, actually. I've just met a few people who lived on my block who are my age, and I, I hadn't met them until I started researching the book um, because we were inside. It was it was dangerous, and so definitely by the early eighties, um, you weren't you didn't really go out and play on St. Mark's Place as much as I think kids had even in the seventies, like yeah. the, the Bar Ted Berrigan's sons. Um, He's a poet. Who's a poet um, who lived on the next block over They're um, about 10 years older than me and they played stickball. But by the time I came along, it was not done as much. Yeah. Yeah. Would you go down to the park at the end to Tompkins Park? <laughs> no. That wasn't exactly like a playland <laughs> either. No. What's going on over there? Kids weren't really allowed in Tompkins Square Park for a long time because it was a tent city. So it was full of homeless people um, and prostitution and a lot of um, shooting gallery action um, and drug dealers. So it wasn't really for kids um, yeah. really until the 90s. Now, you tell a story about um, about being a kid, I don't know how old you were, but you looked out your window and saw like this massive, you know, demonstration. Then the police come in. It mm -hmm. kind of reminded me of, you know, what we'd see later uh -huh. at, um, you know, downtown. But yeah. What was going on in the park? So, um, so there had been um, this tent city for years and years and it had gotten um, kind of stronger and stronger. People <laughs> told me they had TVs there. Like they just, it was like a, you know, housing complex shantytown basically yeah um and there had been a lot of violence there and um anyway the city decided they were going to clean it up they were going to enforce the curfew which i think was 1 a.m make the people leave um so the people were living there and then a lot of anarchist activists also saw this as um, a move to gentrify the area um, and decided they were going to push back 
and uh, reject the curfew. So it, there were clashes periodically, like a lot of weekends. There'd be demonstrations. They'd fight with the police. A couple people would get arrested. And then um, in the summer of 1988, um, there was a really big one. Um, huge, huge fight. Um, went on for hours. And does it have a name? Is it like the Tompkins Square Tompkins Park Square, Riot? Or? That's what they call it. They, do, they yeah, call it a riot? Yeah, they call it the Tompkins Square Park Riot. Other people call it the police riot. Yeah. Um, because they feel like, you know, and, and it's been pretty much established, the police behave very badly. Um, a lot of them taped over their name tags. Um, wow. There were a lot of beatings. Um, you know, there it, it was a real um, wake-up call, I think, for the police department about tactics. Um, it was because it was chaos. And um, everyone who was there tells me the same thing, that it was just total madness, and there didn't seem to be any central authority. How interesting that this, um, again, St. Mark's is like sort of a, a it's happening first there, but that move to protest against against gentrification would happen, you know, all over Manhattan. But this, you're talking about like the late 80s, early 90s, they're already seeing it and frustrated by gentrification. In well, Manhattan. yeah. And even earlier, I mean, there were riots in Tompkins Square Park um, in the 1870s, um, very similar riots where you had police charging down one side of the street and protesters running up the other side. So there's always been this sense of Money's coming in and it's ruining New York. It's taking all the character out. It's just for the rich. I mean, people feel that today so much, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah, it's true. Well, ironically, I think now that I think about it, the 1870s one was the opposite. They wanted money. They wanted this, the park fixed up and the city wasn't doing it because of corruption. Um, so they were mad. The city wasn't getting richer faster. And then cut to 100 years later, people are mad yeah. because it's getting rich too fast. It's a genuine concern. Though. I mean, even in the last, you know, month or two, we've seen, you know, more and more clothes on mm -hmm. St. Mark's Place, cool stores closing, yes. record stores closing. I know closing. Sounds was, you know, that was a blow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you, I mean, do you, you, as a New Yorker, do you struggle with that question too? Like, have we actually passed some point of no return where the disparity in, you know, incomes are just, it's just too great? And does it, it, does it feel like, you know, the street is losing its character? Um, to me, it doesn't because it's, um, you know, if you go there still at two in the morning, you still see teenagers having these very magical experiences. And yes, this buildings around them cost a lot more to live in, um, but this, the streets are free, um, sidewalks are free, and there, people are taking advantage of them still. I think when I would start to worry is if the streets were empty and if people weren't um, walking up and down them and meeting each other and, you know, getting drunk and having this exciting adventure. Um, that's still happening. So um, as far as the character of St. Mark's Place, it feels the same to me. I think there are definite concerns about um, maintaining a diversity of, you know, race and class yeah. um, in New York City. Um, but that to me feels separate from the actual, the character of the place, which to me seems unchanged. It makes me not want to leave the story quite yet until we hit the 90s. Um, <laughs> and I feel like the 90s are cool. And then now this is now this we is are, my teen. These are my these teen are years, teenage yes. years. So I want to hear a couple of stories. But we've got okay. skaters, right? We've got yep. comic sort of nerds. Yeah. Yeah. We've got all kinds of people. Yeah, I was the I was more the nerd. So I worked at St. Mark's Comics um, for a summer when I was like 14. Yeah. Um, and which was fun. And um, and then, you know, I had some friends who were skaters and some, you know, friends who were in various subcultures. Um, did you have a zine? I did. You had a <laughs> How zine. How did you know? <laughs> had many you don't zines. say that in your book. <laughs> well, you had many zines. I leave a lot out of my book, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, uh, you know, we, we just walked up and down the street a lot and we sat on my roof a lot. And, oh, um, great. Yeah. Which is, which I still, I still miss having a roof. 
Um, but yeah, I it was it was a really wonderful time in the sense that there were it felt like a lot more different um, subcultures available to you. So um, before it had been fairly monolithic, I think there had been hippies, there had been punks, there had been hardcore kids. And then suddenly there were, you had everything. You had skaters, you had ravers, you had um, nerds, you had like the internet starting up. So you had kind of computer people, you had just this real flowering of all these, um, I think what I call in the book, beta species. I'd love to hear a little about your research for this like mammoth history project. <laughs> I know you interviewed 200 people. Um, mm -hmm. What else did you do to, to, to learn the past? Um, so I, I went to a lot of different archives, um, like NYU's Tamament um, Library was great, and various branches of the New York Public Library. I spent a lot of time in the Schwartzman building. Um, and then right here, the Municipal Arts Society, I spent some time um, with the collection here, which was wonderful. So thank you for that. Awesome. All right, Ada, we like to ask our podcast guests a few sort of lightning round questions sure. at the end. Are you ready? Of course. I'm so interested in your perspective on these. Hey. I would love to hear your fondest hope for New York City. Um, I think my fondest hope is that young people keep moving here, um, that they can continue to find a way to afford to be here um, and to have all their adventures that they need to have to become interesting people. <laughs> and your greatest fear for the city? Um, I, I worry about people buying apartments and not living in them. Um, mm. that to me, those stories have been chilling. So, I mean, I, when I'm, when I get scared, it's of the city becoming kind of a ghost town again, like it was in the seventies, but like really shiny. Um, shiny ghost town. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, with <laughs> glass, yes, of course, glass. it's all glass. <laughs> yeah. So I want people on the, on the streets walking around. Mm. What's one place you, you personally would like to see preserved for all time? Um, I love Gem Spa on the corner of St. Mark's Place and 2nd Avenue. It's a newsstand, but it's been there for like uh, almost 100 years. And it's um, it's just kind of been the same. It's just where... Such a great name. What does that name mean? What does the name mean? It's, I, I think when it was founded, apparently the, the wives of the guys who started it were Gladys, Ethel, and Miriam. That's the word on the street. And Spa was kind of like a you know newsstand kind of a name. All right, we'd love to hear, last thing, your day off fantasy. What would you do with a day with no responsibilities, completely free day in New York City? Um, I would go to Coney Island. Um, I, I do this a lot anyway. Um, but, you know, I'd take my husband and son and we'd go and, um, you know, sit on the beach and go to the boardwalk and ride the cyclone and um, get those mangoes that they have there with the um, mm -hmm. lime juice and the hot sauce. And the yeah, that's what I do. So listen, I want people to hear where they can find out more about you and get their hands on this book. Tell us how we can learn more. Um, well, it should be um, in all your local bookstores, St. Mark's is Dead. Um, and then also you can go to stmarksisdead.com or adacalhoun.com. And can you spell it for us? Oh, sure. It's um, A-D-A-C-A-L-H-O-U-N. AdaCalhoun.com. Thank you so much. Thank really, you so much, Audrey. Really nice to spend, you know, 200 years with you. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. <laughs> Enjoyed it. Um, and I want to let you all know, too, how to find out more about the Municipal Art Society. It's super easy. The site is mas.org, mas.org. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast today. We'll do it again soon. 